stay in this, this moment of worship, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes just to create a moment of privacy for people here. I, I just have such a sense that there are some people here tonight and they're, and they're struggling with the feeling of reluctance. That, that's the word. It, it might be that, that that word has been in your mind even while we've been worshiping. Reluctance. And it's reluctance because you're approaching your relationship with God like past dating relationships. You're, you're just waiting to be disappointed. It, it's like when you were, you, were, you were in a season of dating in your life and, and, and maybe you're in a season of dating now and, and this is very real for you. You, you meet someone and, and you're hoping that they're going to be everything that they seem to be but you're, you're reluctant to move forward emotionally because you're waiting to be disappointed because you've always been disappointed in your past. And, and you're here tonight, and that sentiment and that pattern has now been translated and overlaid onto your relationship with God. It's like you're dating Him, and you're waiting to be disappointed. And He wants you to know tonight that He cannot disappoint you because He's perfect in every way that you cannot be disappointed in Him. You cannot be disappointed in Him. There will never be a moment in time where you will discover that He is less than what He's presented Himself to you to be. That with Him, He's always gonna be more, and with Him, His more is always better. So if that's you tonight, I'm not gonna do anything else. I just want you to raise your hand. I'm just gonna pray for you. I'm not gonna ask you to come forward or go into a room or, but if that speaks to you tonight, I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand where you are. Come on, leave it up. I see some hands up out there. Keep it up. Father, I pray for these hands that are up right now. I thank you for the courage that they find to be conspicuous before you in the privacy of this moment. And I pray that this confession of reluctance tonight would, would, would be the first step of them journeying away from this place where they've been. That by raising their hand tonight, it's their way of saying, I'm not going to be reluctant with God anymore. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to just be half-hearted. But I'm going to trust and I'm going to believe. And as I give all of who I am, I trust and know that everything that I discover about God is only and always going to be good. That you are merciful and you are gracious, slow to anger, rich and steadfast, love and truth, your word says to us. I pray that tonight for every person who's had their hand up, God, that you would open their eyes, that Holy Spirit, you would enable them to feel the depth of the love of the Father. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said together, amen, amen. Come on, applaud some courage for those people. I'm gonna invite you to be seated. Find a place. People are asking me, what are you, what are you gonna do for your birthday? I said, well, I get, to, I get to preach on the day I turn 30. How great is that? Come on, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Hey, I'm not the only person that we want to celebrate a little bit tonight. We saw uh, online that uh, one of our very own, uh, Sanaya Higgs, was, come on, the valedictorian of her senior class. Come on. And, and 
got accepted to William and Mary full ride. Come on. Come on. So proud of you, young lady. So proud of you. World changer right there. World changer. So proud of her. So proud of her. You're welcome. You know, I've been trying to get to this sermon for about a month. If you've been tracking with us for any amount of time. It's the last in a series on the Holy Spirit, but it's really part two of a message on Pentecost and what happened in Acts chapter 2 and what of that story is for us today and what of it was just for the birthing of the church. And so a few weeks ago, I don't want to reteach all of that, but if, if you're going to appreciate and understand the context of what I'm going to teach on tonight, you're going to want to go back and get that podcast. I've been joking that God's been waiting for someone for this message, and so if you haven't been in a while, God's been waiting for you, and there's something in this message that, uh, that he's been postponing. But then I also thought this morning, which I had not figured this out previously, is that March is the 28th anniversary of my experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I thought, well, maybe God's been waiting for me, right, to just reminded me of how that experience in March of 1991 really charted a course for me and my Christian experience and defined some things for me about what I believe about God and faith in Christ. And so then I began to realize how excited I was to be able to bring this teaching and talk about uh, these uh, texts that are so uh, important to me in my own personal journey as a devoted follower of Christ. I, I, I fear that people are leaving church, not I'm talking about this church, just church in general, right? Because the st statistics show that, that more people are leaving that are coming to churches in America. And I fear that one of the reasons for that is not because they're leaving because they're overwhelmed with things they don't understand. It's because they're underwhelmed by the things that they do understand. Is, is something about, have we done in Western society, have we so sanitized the Christian experience that it's just been reduced to this academic exercise of beliefs and doctrines. Now, beliefs and doctrines are important, right? They're part of the foundation. But can I just tell you, if that's all that you've got left, if that's all that you've got left, you're missing out on so much that brings life to this journey as a devoted follower of Christ. Have we scrubbed out of Christianity everything that is supernatural. I'm a firm believer that one of the reasons why finally when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990, when I was 23 years old, what made that moment so profoundly different for me from all these other moments in my youth where I tried to give my all to Christ only to find myself going back into waywardness, I truly believe that one of the hallmarks, one of the turning points, one of the things that solidified my vow of devotion in December was my baptism in the Holy Spirit in March. Because it was through that experience 
my hope and belief that God was so much bigger than anything that I could find in this world was realized. My hope and belief that there was something about God that was always beyond my reach. I don't know about you, but I want to serve a God just like that. I want to live for a God that's just like that. I remember going to church on that Sunday morning back in March, and they had a guest speaker that was uh, preaching that day, and that was right back in the era where you were at church on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then basically every other night in between. And, and so we were there on Sunday morning, and then uh, this same guest speaker was going to come back and teach during the Sunday night service, and he was going to teach on Acts chapter 2 and on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this, maybe this is a new concept for you, and I'm going to explain what some of this means through the story and also through the teaching tonight, but it was not new for me because the home that I grew up in believed that everything that we find in this book is for today, and so my parents had experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was just a young child through a Faith Alive weekend at a, at a little country Episcopal church in this small town, Verina, where I grew up just outside of Richmond. And I remember being there in the service that morning thinking to myself, I can't wait to come back to church tonight because I want to experience everything that God has for me. And there was a longing inside of my heart, again, for God to be something more than could just be easily understood. It was interesting because I was still kind of in this place of decision of whether or not I was going to abandon the life that I was living and in the temptation that I faced on that day to go back in to the life that I had been living was at times overwhelming. But every time I faced unique temptations on that particular day, I had such an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life saying to me, Fred, God has something for you tonight. Don't give it away in this moment. Can I just tell you, shame robs us of what God wants to give us. Not that I couldn't, God wasn't going to punish me by not giving me something that I desperately desire because I made a mistake during the day, but when I make a mistake during the day, come on, then I clothe myself in shame, and it's my fault that I'm not able to receive what God wants to generously give. So I stood strong that day. I couldn't wait for that Sunday night service to come. He preached and he, and he taught, and many of the things that he taught on, again, these weren't new concepts for me. I was just really waiting for the end of the service, where we had a chance to come down, and people prayed, and we just lingered at the altar, and it was in that moment as I was just standing down there, just as if I were the only one in the room, in this gymnasium that was just converted into a sanctuary, and as I was standing down there, I had this feeling that someone had put their hands on my shoulders. I remember turning around to see who it was, and no one was there, because it was just the hands of all of who God is, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there was a warmth that came over me that I have never felt before. A warmth that came over me that was so incredibly comforting. It was so incredibly, uh, um, it, it, gave you, it gave me this sense of belief that God was always going to be for me. I'm just, there's, there's no feeling like that in the world. No feeling like that in the world. 
And it was in that moment as I was praying and worshiping that just a couple of syllables just began to come out of my mouth. Shandai, Makila, Kandai, Shandai. That's it. Just this little phrase. Now you might say, I'm surprised you said that. And I would say to you, I did it because I wanted you to see what didn't happen to me when I did. My eyes didn't roll back in my head. I didn't fall down on the ground in convulsions. If I knew some other language, and I don't, Spanish, French, Italian, German, and I were to say a phrase in one of those languages, you wouldn't think twice about it. But yet, when we step into a moment of heavenly language, something draws back inside of us, and I think the reason why it draws back inside of us is that the supernatural side of God has been taught out of us, and it needs to be taught back in. We've said this before so many times in this church, if it's unfamiliar to you and it makes you uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar, that's okay. But if it makes you uncomfortable because you're suspicious, then at some point you've got to get over that and trust in who God is and trust in the people that you know. That little phrase for me has become this eloquent flow of language that is an everyday part of my life and has been an everyday part of my life since March of 1991. When we're worshiping, when we're praying, I'm praying in a spiritual language just as often as I am in an English language. Now You might say, well, how does that help you if you don't know what you're saying? We're going to get to that tonight. There is a connection with God that is beyond human understanding that you and I are desperate to discover. I think sometimes we're reluctant to embrace the supernatural nature of who God is and some of the experiences that he has for us because we confuse two concepts. And these two concepts are what is mystical versus what is supernatural. Mystical means that it's something that is completely beyond human understanding. And I would suggest to you that there is nothing in the Christian experience that is completely beyond human understanding. There are always degrees of understanding. There's going to be gaps. The Trinity, which has been at the center of this entire sermon series, right? We're never going to fully understand the nature of what the Trinity is, but it doesn't mean there aren't degrees of understanding on the way. We're not going to fully understand everything. The Bible says until we get to heaven, then we're going to know everything as fully as we are known. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, and that means completely. We're going to know everything one day when we're in heaven to the degree that God knows us today. He knows us today completely, so complete understanding is one day going to come. I don't like this idea of mystical because it gives people a permission to not try to understand what they could know because of everything that they'll never understand. In fact, the word mystical doesn't even appear in the Bible. Not even one time. Do a word search. If you search in the New American Standard, you'll find it appears oddly in a chapter in Revelation, but it's a poor translation. The word doesn't belong there because in the Greek, the word is pneumatikos, which means to be led by the Spirit. The word supernatural, interestingly enough, doesn't appear in the Bible either. Not one time. It's interesting, isn't it? 
I think the reason why this word supernatural doesn't appear in Scripture not one time because the people in ancient times that God used to give us the Scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit is because in ancient times there was just an acceptance that there were forces at work in this world that were beyond nature and science. And what's happened over time is, is that as science has elevated, and we're big fans of science, but not at the expense of the supernatural. In ancient times, there was this incredible awareness and understanding of supernatural. Much of that's been lost to us, but there wasn't so much of understanding of science. And as understanding of science has risen, we've abandoned the supernatural. God never intended that. He created both the supernatural and everything that is science. He created that too. They were always supposed to work in partnership with each other. This idea that supernatural and science are mutually exclusive is a secular concept. It is not biblical. Supernatural means that an event is attributed to a force beyond scientific understanding. It just means that we can't explain it through science. It means that we can't explain it through our natural understanding. But everything that we refer to as being supernatural in Scripture, in the Christian experience, has a measure of the natural attached to it. It does. Supernatural doesn't mean that there's nothing natural. It just means that it goes beyond. What do you mean by that? Well, we talk about God, and we believe here as a church that God can supernaturally heal people. We pray for people. We pray for people. Does he always do it? No. But our command is not to understand why he doesn't do it. Our command is to pray. So we stand in faith and we trust in the sovereignty of God. But there's not a person here that wouldn't acknowledge that healing is a part of this natural world. God created our bodies with the capacity to heal itself to a measure and to a degree. Doctors, healthcare professionals, psychiatrists and professional counselors, they help people heal to a degree. When we say that God heals supernaturally, it means that he does something that's beyond what we're capable of experiencing on our own without him. Or it means that he bypasses, it could have been healed naturally, but he just jumps right past it to do what he can do. This idea of supernatural experience, is the, it's supposed to be at the center of our expectations for our Christian experience. It wasn't just for the birthing of the church. It's for the continuation of the church until the return of Christ, until the new heaven and the new earth. Acts 2, 1 through 13 gives us this incredible story of the early church experiencing the supernatural nature of God. And in doing so, it was supposed to establish for us an expectation that there was going to be something supernatural for us in our journey as the church moved forward throughout history. Is this thing that the Bible refers to in Acts chapter 1 as the 
baptism of the Holy Spirit, is it really different from our salvation? This is question number one for us tonight. This word salvation, it's a biblical term the Bible uses to talk about the moment in time where we make a vow of devotion to Christ and the Holy Spirit is born inside of me. And in that moment, I'm rescued out of a life separated from God. I'm rescued out of a life separated from my divine destiny. I'm born into the family of God and then I am set onto a path and a course for the divine purpose he has for me, and that one day when I breathe my last, I get to be in eternity with him forever. That's why we call it salvation. John 20, 20 verses 22 speaks of a moment, a post-resurrection experience where Jesus is, he dies, he's raised from the dead, and then in his resurrected state, he appears to some of the disciples Listen to what it says. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that it's at that moment they experienced their salvation. It was at that moment they were born into the family of God. It was at that moment where the Spirit of God came alive inside of them. But it's interesting that it it took another 50 days before we get to Acts chapter 2. Now, we broke all that history out a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to break it down again, but the difference between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost, all of that happened for a reason. Their salvation happened at at Passover. Their baptism of the Holy Spirit happened at Pentecost. There's symbolism in all of that. It's important that we understand. But there's a reason why it happened for them so many days apart Because I think God was trying to make sure that we would never confuse the two as one. It doesn't mean that they can't happen at the same time for us, but if they happen at the same time for us, I've known people who have made a vow of devotion to Christ and then they experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit straight away. There's stories in Scripture where it happens as well, but the first instant, God intentionally separated it by 50 days because He wanted to make sure that we would understand that they are not the same, even though they can coincide with one another. I like to think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a spiritual chiropractic experience. It's the Holy Spirit gaining ground in becoming the dominant influencer of our will. There are so many influences in our lives speaking to us that's directing our behavior and our responses and our value system, but the Holy Spirit is supposed to be at the center of that. And when you make a vow of devotion to Christ and the Holy Spirit is born inside of you, it's, it's just in the mix because you've been walking with all these other influences for many times, for, for many years. It takes time for the Holy Spirit to be at the center of who you are. And I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural encounter where God kind of gets a hold of us and He just rightly aligns us in a moment. And I believe that's why spiritual language is in connection with the baptism of the Holy Spirit because in order for me to step out into a place of faith and begin to pray and worship in a language that I don't understand, it requires and necessitates a degree of surrender and trust of the Holy Spirit that's not there until He's at the center of who I am. Question number two, you might be here tonight and say, well, I've never heard this before. And what I would say is, well, maybe that's why God has you here. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from, from, 
repentance from acts that lead to death, and a faith in God. Instruction about baptisms, it's plural for reason, because there are four baptisms the Bible speaks of. Specifically, one of them is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, when the writer of Hebrews was penning this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, it spoke of knowledge of the four baptisms as rudimentary, basic Christianity. But yet, for so many of us, it's a new concept and a new idea. May we forever be a church that doesn't underwhelm our city with what's easily understood. And may we risk overwhelming us with things that are the mysteries of God that are supernatural because it inspires something inside of them to believe that God is everything that is beyond this world. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says God has put eternity in our hearts. Is it possible that people are less inclined to go to church because the church has stopped touching the eternity that God put inside of them and is only resonating with their humanity? May we never be that church here in the 757. Acts 2, 38 to 39, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is part of the very first sermon that was preached at the very first church some 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. And listen to what he says, Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, This promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far away. That's you and I. And to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. This one text alone deals with the inappropriate teaching that what happened for them was just for the birthing of the church. It wasn't. It's for us. It was for us. We want to be a church that teaches people to have an expectation for the things of God that are supernatural, especially the baptism of the Holy Spirit, especially the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how it leads to spiritual language. Luke 24, 28 to 31. I'm backing up in time a little bit now. This is another post-resurrection experience with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It says, by this time they were nearing Emmaus, and at the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. And so he went home with them, and as he sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them, right? It's reminiscent of communion, the the Lord's Supper, and it said, verse 1, suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him, and at that moment, it says, he disappeared. Supernatural. Suddenly, their eyes were open. I love this text because something inside of you and something inside of me have got to continue in our journey as a devoted follower of Christ, believing and understanding that there are going to be moments where God has to supernaturally open our eyes because there are things about the Christian experience that have been beyond our reach, but they're not supposed to stay beyond our reach. If you live the rest of your life as a devoted follower of Christ and you say, I don't really want to I don't want to be challenged by anything new and different than I already have. Then what I would say is you're settling for mediocrity. You should check it out. It's, it's a little bit comical on the road to Emmaus on Luke 24 because these two men were actually trying to tell Jesus what had been happening. They were trying to instruct him when really what they needed is for him to open their eyes so they could be instructed. How many times do we approach 
beliefs like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like spiritual language or churches that believe and teach these things, posturing in such a way where we're trying to instruct them out of these things that we ourselves should be believing. We want to be a church that inspires you to trust that Christ can open your eyes and to bring clarity and understanding where there's never been clarity and understanding before. Question number three, well, Fred, I, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control. What if I just kind of set aside my reluctance? What if I begin to just embrace this idea that God has supernatural experience for me? Will I lose control of myself? And this is what I say, you'll be in control of yourself then as much as you are today. So if you have a problem with self-control, it might be that you become out of control. But it's not because of who the Holy Spirit is inside of you. It's because of the humanity that needs to be worked out of you. You might say, well, Fred, I've been in churches before that teach and believe these things, and people were out of control. I've been in services like that before. But what I can tell you, that wasn't God. That was just them and their own brokenness, lacking control. You can't be in the Spirit and not be in control. Because one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. When Paul is inspired to give us a list, and this isn't an exhaustive list, this is just one list, right? We teach, if, if this is new for you, get one of those little green books in the back called Praxis, it's free to you, but we teach 24 virtues that you find in Scripture that come from the five great growth lists of the Bible. This text in Galatians where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not the only fruit, all of the fruit of the Spirit are all of the virtues of Christ. So Paul here is just giving us a sampling well, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things, which means that it's one of the few things in this life, the virtues of Christ, that you can't have too much of. Fat and sweet tea. That's it. I'm going to be so caffeinated over the next few days. Oh, Between that and Coke in a bottle, it's going to be great. If the Holy Spirit is moving in you in a profound way, those should be the moments in the life where you're the most in control. Because it's who He is. It's the nature of His being. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, and then verse 40, it says, Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. Jumping down to verse 40, But be sure that everything is done properly. And in order. Sometimes people that are newer to the, this church, when we come to messages like this and teachings similar, they're surprised that as a church we believe these things. Not because we hide it, but because we're demonstrating supernatural activity in a way that many of you have never seen it before because it's done with such decency and order. People love to talk about King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem from the house of Obed-Edom and how he danced and cast off all restraint. He embarrassed his wife. People say, well, David seemed to kind of go against the grain of what was happening and everybody's expectations. And I would say to you, yes, he did. But guess who he was? 
He was the worship leader on that day. He wasn't just a person in attendance. You see, the, if you use King David and you characterize him as a person that's just in the crowd, that stepped out of the flow of what was happening, then you mischaracterize that story. And when you mischaracterize texts of Scripture, you're always going to be in a belief system that is contrary to the full counsel of the Bible. The person that's leading is responsible, right, for not being bound up by the expectations of the people that are in the room. But working in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then we collectively follow. That's part of what keeps a church in decency and in order. We ask people that we trust. We ask people that we know. We ask people that step into moments where they take the lead of the service. We never give that to people that we don't trust are going to be obedient to who God is and what he asks of them. Let me just give you these four things. That if you're in a worship service that's expressive and impassioned, let me give you four examples of how you should be in control. Because when we're in control, we're in step. And when we're in control and in step, that's when we're in the Spirit. Our volume, it should match what's going on in the room. If there's a moment of quiet reflection, God's not going to ask you to be the loudest person in the room. Because then it distracts everybody else away from what God is speaking to them. Your posture I remember when the church first planted, God bless him, there was this young fellow that would come right down front. I kid you not, he sat during the whole time we worshiped, and then he stood the whole time I preached. So he was sitting when everyone else was standing, and then he was standing when everyone else was sitting. So we got together, we loved on him a little bit. And guess who one of the people that he brings up? Brings up King David. We're always looking for a story that gives us permission to do what we want, as opposed to being in step, which ultimately leads to being in the Spirit. Your place, where are you? Where are you in the room? Are you in step with what everyone else is doing? It's your volume, it's your, it's your posture, it's your, it's your place. It's one of the reasons why in our and our extended worship, right, which we call our encounter nights. There's just a, a freedom and a liberty that we give so you can move around a little bit. We do prayer stations. You can be up here at other times when people are out there. There's, there are environments and settings where you need to have some freedom. But in a corporate service like this, it's important to be in step with everyone else. Because ultimately, it's about asking this question, what's your impact? Because if your impact is drawing people's attention to you instead of pointing people to Christ, then I would say that you're not in the Spirit. In corporate times of worship, everything about my behavior should direct people to who Christ is. It should never distract them from it. 
Question number four, is this for everyone? Fred, is, is, is what you're saying for everyone? All right, so you might say, well, Fred, I appreciate this idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. Maybe that's what Peter was talking about. But what about this idea uniquely of spiritual language? Because it could be that you've come from a church where spiritual language has been taught about that it's one of many spiritual gifts, and that might not be for everyone. And I would agree with you when you're talking about a certain kind of spiritual language. But one of the reasons why there's so much confusion around spiritual language in the church today is that people take certain texts that speak of spiritual language in a certain way and make that the teaching for everything with spiritual language. The Bible specifically talks about spiritual language in three distinct ways. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. I'm just going to reference that. These notes are going to be online this week as a PDF that's attached to the podcast. You can download this and all these texts will be there. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. Let me read this explanation. There is the person whose primary gift to the body of Christ is a prophetic ministry of declaring a message from God that must be accompanied by an interpretation. This might not be your calling. That might not be who God's asked you to be in the body of Christ. But there are people, there's a prophetic calling on their life to be just a declarative voice for who God is. And oftentimes, Part of their declaration comes in a spiritual language, and in that moment when they are representing the voice of God to you, that has to be accompanied by an interpretation so there can be understanding. That's one kind of spiritual language. The Bible also talks about spiritual language for moments of manifestation to reveal the glory of God. There are moments when people are compelled by God to be an instrument of Him being manifested to the world. Meaning that it's not who you're supposed to be continually in the body of Christ, but because the Holy Spirit is inside of me, I'm always a candidate to be used by Him in a supernatural demonstration of power. We call these manifestational gifts. The Bible talks about these in the first part of 1 Corinthians 12. And it's interesting that spiritual language in the interpretation of spiritual language is verse 7 and verse 11, and it's in the list of these manifestational moments. It could be that God wants to use you with a spiritual language. It could be that you have the spiritual language for the moment. It could be that you have the interpretation, and it doesn't mean that that's your calling, prophetic ministry. It just means that you're the candidate he chose to reveal his glory. You might say, well, Fred, why do you keep using the word spiritual language when the Bible talks about tongues? The reason for that is because nobody uses the word tongue to reference language in our world anymore. So now I ends up going off to William and Mary. You're not going to walk up to her freshman year and say, so uh, what foreign tongue are you taking? (laughs) What's wrong with you? Why are you so weird? Right? No, we don't use that word anymore. But when the Bible was written, that's the word that people use for language. We use spiritual language, not because we're trying to sanitize, right? But we're trying to teach. Language is the common word that's used in society today to speak of how we communicate with each other. Spiritual language is just that. It's a heavenly language that God gives to us. We call it supernatural because the language is not learned, it's imparted. And then there is a third. This is the one that's for everybody. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 is referencing this. 
There's the ability to express ourselves to God in times of prayer and worship, unencumbered by human intellect and earthly language. It's the reason why this gift is so beautiful and why it's so powerful, because it enables you to step into moments of expression in prayer and worship with your Creator, with your God, where you're not limited by human intellect and earthly language. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more limited I am by my human intellect and my earthly language. All of us have been in moments in time where we've said, or at least thought, I just couldn't find the words. God never wants you to feel that sentiment for Him. When you begin to break it down like this, all of a sudden spiritual language doesn't seem so strange anymore. It just seems so perfect, doesn't it? Why wouldn't a perfect God give us the ability to communicate with Him in a way that is completely free and without limit. You might say, well, Fred, I, if I don't understand what I'm saying, what difference does it make? And what I would say to you is that sometimes communication isn't about an intellectual exchange, it's about a heart exchange. And what I would say to you, that some of those heart exchange moments are more powerful than any intellectual exchange that you could ever have. And if you don't think that's true, then you look at a new baby with their parents and the way that they talk to each other. The one doesn't understand the other. It's interesting, isn't it? That the way that the bond of affection begins between a child and their parents sets aside human understanding completely. There's a reason for that. Because the bond that happens of the heart, right, the bond that happens of the heart sets into motion the bond of a relationship that's hard to break forever. Why wouldn't God want to do that with us? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation that God has given. One will speak in a spiritual language and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done, listen to what it says, must strengthen all of you. It's interesting, right? This word strengthen is a Greek word that gives us the English word edifice, or uh, uh, an edifice is right, is something that is built. And so that has, has morphed into this word edifying, which you, you might be familiar with that word. When, when you say something is edifying, it means that it, it's, it builds you up. It doesn't tear you down. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to take this concept of being strengthened, of being edified, and he attaches it he attaches it to all of these experiences, and one of them is spiritual language. Because at the end of the day, spiritual language is about me being built up in my relationship with God so that the bond of affection that I share with Him is not easily broken. I remember on a missions trip, it was a pastor's conference that I went to Niger, Africa back in 2009, and as we were preaching and teaching, and some of it was during the day in the conference, and then part of it were out in these villages and, and uh, preaching the gospel of Christ to, for some people had never heard the gospel before, not ever. And when you're preaching, and sometimes in settings like that, there's a translator of a translator because there's multiple languages in the crowd. So I'm preaching, and then the 
person next to me is preaching what I'm preaching, and then the person next to him is preaching what they're preaching. You don't walk away from that, from that experience, and go, that was weird. Why, why, why would they, they want to use a language that would enable communication? Why would, why would they want to learn a language that they didn't understand? We look at that, and it seems perfectly reasonable to us. And what I'm saying to you, to God, when it comes to spiritual language, He's saying, this should be equally reasonable to us. Not because of the intellectual connection that is established, but because of the heart connection that you and I desperately need. And the learning that comes through spiritual language is through divine impartation that is birthed in us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. The word baptizo in Greek means to be made fully wet. So when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you don't get more of God, He gets more of you. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, all of who God is is born inside of us. But at some point, as we talked about earlier, the Holy Spirit needs to begin to wash over the rest of who we are and needs to be placed at the center of who I am. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about. This is my favorite book. If all of what I'm talking about to you is new tonight, then you need to order this book. It's called The Beauty of Spiritual Language by Jack Hayford. It says, in reality, the whole of salvation is wrapped up into one large package. He tells the story in the prior pages of one year at Christmas for his wife. He got her this really small gift, and so he put it in a box, inside of a box, inside of a box, inside of a box, right? So that on Christmas morning, she had this massive box, but every time she opened one, she had to open another until she got to the real present. It says, from the inception of our new life in Christ, we have the full bounty of all that is promised to us. But just as my wife needed to unwrap each of the individual gifts within the larger gift box, it is similarly true that each of us is called to partake, to decisively open and receive to ourselves each of the many blessings and provisions and gifts that God has for us. There is a theological accuracy in the proposition that everything we receive from God is delivered to us when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. We believe that. Listen to what he says. But equally important, there is a practical necessity. The application of each facet of God's resource for our lives depends upon our unwrapping what he's provided. You and I need to take, receive, and open each portion within the promise, taking it unto ourselves, opening ourselves to the possibilities inherent in each part of the full dimensions of life we've been given through Jesus Christ. Stand with me as I pray. Father, we don't want to stop short at any box. We want to unwrap them all. And what we know, God, is that in this journey as a devoted follower of Christ, we're going to spend the rest of our lives unwrapping boxes because we're never going to get to the middle until we get there. We're never going to get to a place where there's nothing more to unwrap until we get there. And I pray that part of tonight would inspire us all to keep digging, to keep learning, to keep understanding, even the things that right now feel beyond our reach. 
I, I pray, God, that, that we would not want to be a part of a Christian experience that's all too easily understood. And I pray for our church tonight as we're stepping into this historical moment, God. In the coming weeks, as North Riverside Baptist Church votes on the gifting of this property and building to us, that we know this is an historic year for our church. I pray that these things that we talked about tonight, that they will always be a part of the foundation of who the City Life Church is. Always be a part. A church about beliefs and doctrines, yes. A church, a church about understanding and reason, yes. But also a church that's not afraid of the things that are beyond our reach. May it be, God, that this place, this church, this community of faith, would be many things, but one of them would most certainly be a place that has an appetite for the supernatural. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.